seated, please. We turn this morning to the second, uh, for the second to last time to uh, Ecclesiastes, second to last time at least in this series, to the 11th chapter. We'll pick up there at verse 7, and we'll continue on through the 7th verse of chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 11 is at page 559 in your pew Bible. Over the past couple of weeks, uh, Kohelet, the preacher, has been giving us some concluding thoughts about how to live our lives. He's uh, recently taught us to live wisely. And last week, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has taught us to live boldly. And now he comes near to the end of his instruction and teaches us to live joyfully. Live joyfully. Rejoice. It's actually the the last repetition in this book of a recurring theme that has met us several times, has it not, in the course of this little book since we started this series on the first Lord's Day of this year of our Lord, 2023. Well, now may the Lord open our ears to hear toward which end. Let's pray. Father, we know that if your Holy Spirit will accompany your word, who has inspired and carried the preacher to write them, if he will also open our hearts, then we will be able to not only to hear but to receive and to be molded and shaped by your word. And that's our desire, Father, that uh, we leave here more like Christ, more and more conformed to his image by the power of your word at work in us. So this is what we humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 11, beginning at verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice! O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your hearts and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. And the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond, blossom, the almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about in the streets. 
before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered or the fountain at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. As we take this second to last lap through Ecclesiastes, we may glance back over our shoulders briefly to see where we've been. All his vanity has been one of Solomon's common refrains. It has been his verdict on all of life, that there is a certain ephemeral, passing, you know, rapidly fleeting, vapor-like quality to our lives, to all of life along with a futility and an emptiness emptiness that leave our hearts longing for a place of permanence, for a sense of, of meaning and of purpose. With eternity placed by God in our hearts, we grope about endeavoring to grasp the key that unlocks the mysteries of life, that, that opens the door behind which are, is hidden the whole full picture the whole story of which our lives are but a part. But no such key can be found under the sun. As Jay Stafford Wright puts it, life has lost the key to itself. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If you want the key, if you want the key, you have to go to the locksmith. Who made the lock to open the doors? And Solomon knows what he's talking about, doesn't he? I mean, we've followed him as he's looked for that key in pleasure. He's looked for that key in riches. He's looked for that key in labor. He's even looked for the key in wisdom itself, only to be disappointed every single time. But the search and the journey have not been futile, have they? Because in the process, we've learned much. I will confess to you, I've learned much more than I had anticipated when we started this series. Much about God, much about ourselves, about living the Christian life through the series of events that meet us one after another after another in this rough and tumble world in which we live our lives every day. Gritty realism has marked every chapter of this book, hasn't it? We cannot make sense of everything. It's just, it just is not possible. It, it, there's a perpetual why hanging over all of our lives, right? Why this? Why that? Why not? Why now? And it's a sore travail for us, even as Christians. Let's just be honest. It is vanity, but not in such a way that renders life not worth living. In fact, quite the opposite. The preacher's consistent counsel has not been throw up your hands and give up on life, but rather with confidence, live your life. Live it. Live it to the full. He he sounds like Jesus, doesn't he? He says, "I, I came to give them life and life what 
Abundant, yes, thank you, exactly. How many times has, has Koalath, the preacher Solomon, told us things like there's nothing better for a person than they, they should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Or, or God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This, he says, is God's gift to you and to me. Rather than stifling us or causing us to become morose, we Christians are called to joy, to rejoice, even as we've been singing and will sing this morning. There is certainly a plan. There is a divine plan behind all of our life experiences, all of them, good or bad. Even though the way those experiences and those events fit into the larger picture just escapes us, is hidden from us, is shrouded in mystery, and therefore simply must be accepted by faith. But by faith, we may not only accept, but actually embrace the fact that God is, as the Apostle Paul puts it, working all things together for our good. All things. Therefore, we must never begin to treat the common things in life like food and, and drink and love and work as though they were not marvelous gifts of God. Instead, let's learn to serve God, living our daily lives before the face of God, Coram Deo, as R.C. popularized it, and receiving everything that comes to us from the hand of God. That brings us to this commandment in verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. And not only the young, per se, but the aged, or as we who are being addressed in verse 8 prefer to say it, the well-seasoned. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Rejoicing is the order of the day. Every day, whether you are young or just young at heart, rejoice. Rejoice. Actually, there are three commands here, and to every English-speaking preacher's delight, they all start with an R. Uh, rejoice, remove, and remember. Now, before we get to those, however, we need, we need to get a sense of the flow of the entire section that we've just read by noticing how it begins and ends. It begins verse 7 of chapter 11 talking about life and vitality. You know, it, light and seeing the sun. These are rich and full metaphors for life. Uh, but by the time we reach verse 2 of chapter 12, darkness is displacing the light. And by the time we get to verse 7 of chapter 12, the sun is fully set and the dust is returning to the earth. Metaphor, of course, for death. 
So the sun rises in chapter 11 and it sets in chapter 12. And in between that sunrise and sunset is what? Like the old game show, this is your life. Yours and mine. He's taking us from the vigors of youth to the struggles of old age to the throes of death. Every command he gives us today to rejoice, to remove, to remember, he conveys with a view toward what is coming to most all of us, all of us certainly who will live long enough to experience it. Every time I read this passage, by the way, my mind returns to old Mr. Schulz. I don't mean Ron, who was buried just a couple of weeks ago. I mean Ron's father, Ed Schulz, uh, who worshipped here for the first two years that I was uh, pastor and died in April of 1996. Now, only a few of you will remember uh, Ed Schulz, and re- if you do, you'll remember him walking, more like shuffling, into the doors of the church. And you will immediately recognize the description of him near the end here in chapter 12. First, the mental capacities begin to diminish. Verse 2, the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. We all know someone who in their their advanced years or old age lost their mental sharpness, their, their memory, their understanding, their will, their affections, their imagination, all of it got clouded. One mental and internal infirmity follows upon another at the sunset of, of a life. And then there, there are those physical dilapidations that are described in, in, in terms of, uh, in metaphor of a house beginning in Verse 3, the keepers of the house tremble, speaking of the, the arms, and, and strong men are bent. Now, thinking about the legs, verse 9, and, and the grasshopper drags itself along, verse 5. Here, here's, here's specifically where my mind turns to Mr. Scholes, who, who like a languishing grasshopper, formerly full of vitality and life and, and power, now barely shuffling his way along, you know into church, bent over in need of help for every step. The grinders cease because they're few. We lose our teeth in our old age. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. Not much imagination needed there to understand. He's likely talking about the loss of eyesight. I remember printing, by the way, extra large print bulletins for, for, the, for Mr. Scholes and and uh, for him to read during the worship each week. One rises up at the sound of a bird, even so, as we grow older, sleep begins to evade us. And, you know, you young people, you can get up and shout at that crazy mockingbird outside your window who's waking you up at five in the morning. You can get up and chew him away and shout at him, and you go right back to bed and you just flop back down, don't you? But, you know, older people, old people, they can get up and shout at the bird well enough, but... Uh, as far as going back to sleep, well, uh, not likely. Now we could go one by one through the whole list of metaphors, but why? I mean, we all know what Kohala is talking about here and what he's describing. And if you'd really like a line-by-line interpretation of every verse, every phrase in verses 1 through 5, you can come see me after worship and I'll, I'll give a printed list to you. Uh, I think we can jump to verse 6. 
to read about the silver cord snapped, the golden bowl broken, the pitcher shattered, the wheel broken at the cistern. All very colorful ways of describing what? Death. Death that culminates, verse 8, with the dust returning to the dust and the spirit taking flight to God. After two years of being his pastor, I remember, as if it were yesterday, the sight of, of Mr. Scholl's recently deceased, lying motionless in the early morning light cast through the window on the bed where just hours earlier I had stroked his dying brow. Now jaw slack and eyes darkened and lifeless. The spirit departed and the whole left right where the spirit, where the soul had left it. It was my first encounter with death at the young age of 28. It was truly a sight of the silver cord snapped and the golden bowl broken, and I realized then that my life too must and does inexorably move in that very direction toward my own appointment with death. And though I admitted I did not grasp it nearly as well at 28 as I do at 55, nor likely do I grasp it as well at 55 as I will at 75. Oh, why so morbid, Solomon? Why take us like Dickens' ghost of Christmas future to our own deathbeds, to our, to our tombs like this? Well, because only when we have fast-forwarded to the end, only when death has rattled its chains in our sight and hearing, are we ready to be stirred to action, to, to obedience, to the commandments to rejoice, to remove, and to remember. First, dear ones, let us rejoice. Verse 8, if a person lives many years, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. And again, verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. You'd think that all this talk about death might dampen the spirits of Christians, but as a matter of fact, and almost counterintuitively, it serves to sharpen our joy in life while we have it. I think maybe the first thing to clear up here is that the preacher is talking about us all. Yes, there's a particular emphasis on the very young here, to be sure, and you young people will do well to listen, and listen carefully and closely. He's telling you that you will only be young once, and therefore you must enjoy the days of your youth, of these youthful discoveries and experiences and in romance, you know, both the broad sense of that word and the, and the more narrow sense. Life is to be enjoyed, young people. Enjoy it. Many people in this room might, might even think about trading places with you to enjoy that life of yours again. Life is to be enjoyed. But he's talking to those also who have lived many years, isn't he? That we should rejoice in them all. And, and who's to say that youth is only defined by flips of the calendar on the wall? You know, Oswald Sanders points out that four major poets who lived to be over 80 years of age did more work in the last decade of their life than they did between the ages of 20 and 30. You know, William Gladstone took up a new language at the age of 70. 
and started his fourth term as Prime Minister of Great Britain at the age of 83. At 83, Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote Crossing the Bar. John Wesley, Charles's brother, whom we met earlier this morning, was 88 and still preaching daily with eminent success, with eloquent power, with undiminished popularity at 88 years old. Michelangelo painted his world-famous The Last Judgment at 66 years of age. So those of you who uh, in this room were born a little earlier than the others in this room understand that this command is for you too to rejoice. Rejoice, all Christians, in the hearing of my voice, rejoice. Now, understanding this, rejoicing, uh, living a life that is joyful, this is not a suggestion, okay? The Bible's not suggesting joy and rejoicing in a joyful life to you and to me. It's commanding it. C.S. Lewis put it wonderfully, didn't he? It is our duty as Christians to be as happy as possible. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Whose voice was that? You recognize it, don't you? It's the Apostle Paul's spirit-inspired voice in his letter to the Philippians. Rejoice always. Rejoice, he wrote, from his own chains of imprisonment. Rejoice always. Be happy. Turns out Bobby McFerrin was on to something, wasn't he, with his a cappella song back in 1988. Don't worry, be happy now, right? Sounds like pretty biblical advice, actually. Or if you prefer, Louis Armstrong. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also in the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands saying, How do you do? <laughs> They're really saying, I love you. Rejoice. Rejoice. Which leads me to the second commandment. On the other side, actually, the same coin. Remove. Verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. Look, every one of us has woes and trials and pains and difficulties and aches and ailments and plenty of reasons to be vexed, to be aggravated, to be agitated, to be angry. The question for every Christian every day is this. What will I do with them? Will I dwell on them today? Is today a day, not like the psalmist says, a day to be glad, but rather a day to mull over my miseries in my mind over and over again until I'm consumed by vexation? Or do I train my own heart? Do I take hold of my own heart and Train it to release these things to God and to His care instead. I tell you, I look back over several years 
uh, decades of life, and I see plenty of times that I became deeply angry over things that happened to me or that other people did to me. And I can more, more than match those times with periods of anxiety, of worry, and fear over this matter and that matter and over this decision and this circumstance and that potentiality that hadn't even happened yet, worrying about that in my head and in my life. And hear me on this point. I think I'm old enough now to say it with some authority. All that worry and fear and anxiety and all the rest and anger, you know what it accomplished? Not one thing, not one blooming thing. What it did was consume time and energy and, and, and it shortened my life, steal days, weeks, perhaps years of my life were given over to those things that should have been spent rejoicing instead. Ask yourself now, and answer yourself honestly, what is it that is distracting you from rejoicing? What's distracting you from, from all-out rejoicing? What is it that keeps your mind captive and steals it from concentrating on God's goodness to you? And what's causing you to be consumed by anger and anxiety and and angst. Put it away. Put them all away. It, remove them, the scripture says. Banish them. Do not let them master you. Do not let them steal from you your biblical birthright of joy. I put it in just a downright practical way. Listen, life is too short to waste your time, any time, worse nursing anger and worry and fear and angst and all the Let them go. Third, remember, verse 1 of chapter 12, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And back up to verse 9, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Now, none of you here this morning, I, I don't have to tell you this, none of you was dreaming when, when I read those things that, that Solomon's saying, oh, go sin it up, you know, now I can do whatever I want while I'm young, do whatever I feel like without regard to whether it is living lawfully or not. And to help us in this matter, he says, look back, he says, look back at, at your Lord, at your creator, and, and then look ahead at your Lord the Lord your judge. See, remembering the Lord as your maker and remembering your Lord as your judge will together act as a sort of ballast to keep your ship straight and standing straight in the water. Obviously, we're not being told here to give ourselves over to promiscu promiscuity and disobedience and, and sin. Uh, we will have to give answer in the great assize to come. But what may not be nearly as obvious to us as Christians is this. 
and we're not to give ourselves over to promiscuity, you know, to, to disobedience, sin, and all the rest. But neither are we to give ourselves over to stodgy, stoic, gloomy asceticism. And not when God has given us so many good gifts to enjoy. I didn't even have time to finish Louis Armstrong's song this morning. He goes on. All these good gifts to enjoy. God's good gifts of food and of drink and of friends, of love and of of labor to enjoy that's the purpose to enjoy them god says i give them to you to enjoy this is required of god by god of us who gives us these good things to enjoy in fact it's not so it's not too much to say that god will while god will judge us for the abuses of his good gifts you know what else we're going to have to give answer for for not enjoying his good gifts. For not fully engaging, loving, enjoying the good gifts that he's given us. Leaving them on the shelf. Unenjoyed. We will give answer for what we saw and, and didn't enjoy. It is your responsibility to rejoice. I can hardly think of a better way to end this morning than with this from Walt Kaiser. Your one life will soon be passed and only what is done for Christ and with eyes fixed on Christ will last. So have fun! Rejoice! And delight yourself in the thrill of living. And put a prudent tone into your step by recalling that today will reappear in the tomorrow when we face the one who fully knows right from wrong. Christians, rejoice.